Welcome to our second podcast for Thanks for Your Service. I'm David Hall. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian Defence Force. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net. That's one word, thanksforyourservice.net. You can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. In this podcast, we continue our tour of the MacArthur Museum in Brisbane, where John Dunn takes us on a guided tour. We visit Horn Island in the Torres Strait and speak to Vanessa Seakey, who is the curator of the Torres Strait Heritage Museum. Vanessa gives us an insight into the island's World War II military history. We learn about Lost Medals Australia, a service run by Glyn Lanwarn, a serving lieutenant colonel in the Australian Army. Glyn reunites lost service medals with their original recipients and families. The McCarthy Museum is located on the 8th floor of MacArthur Chambers at 201 Edward Street in Brisbane and was the location of General Douglas MacArthur and the Brisbane headquarters of the war in the South West Pacific. John Dunn is a supervising associate at the museum. In our last podcast, John gave us a tour of the museum and we continue that tour now. Uh, how does uh, uh, General Douglas MacArthur end up in Australia? Uh, in 1935, uh, he goes up to Manila at the request of uh, Manuel Quezon, who is the President uh, of the Philippines, as an advisor to the Philippines Army. Uh, prior to this, MacArthur had uh, uh, gone to uh, West Point, he graduated from West Point in 1903, he'd been through World War One. he'd worked his way up the ranks and become Chief of Staff of uh, the Army and uh, he finished that uh, stint in 1935. Uh, there was nowhere else for him to go so he goes to the Philippines uh, where he had uh, quite a uh, an affection for the Philippines. His father uh, who was a Civil War Major General. He had actually been up there as the military governor and um, Douglas MacArthur had been posted up there on a number of occasions. So uh, eventually, uh, Quezon offers uh, MacArthur the post of uh, head of the Philippines Army and he becomes Field Marshal MacArthur. There's no such rank in the, uh, in the US uh, system. And MacArthur's up there uh, building up the... Uh, the Philippines uh, Army uh, and their expertise when Pearl Harbor attacked on the 7th of December 1941. Uh, MacArthur is aware of that, but for some reason uh, he doesn't do anything. Uh, and the Japanese fly down from uh, Taiwan um, and attack Manila and uh, the Philippines there, the air bases that uh, are there in northern uh, Luzon, and MacArthur loses half his uh, bomber force on the first day. Eventually the, J the Japanese are going to invade uh, and push down the towards Manila and uh, force uh, MacArthur down into the Bataan Peninsula and MacArthur takes up residence on the uh, island fortress of Bregador. Uh, that's at the mouth of uh, Manila Harbour. Uh, now MacArthur uh, is going to uh, uh, escape from the Philippines uh, because he knows he's going to be criticised by his troops if he does that. So he waits until um, Roosevelt orders him out. And Roosevelt uh, knows he can't leave MacArthur there because 
if he allows MacArthur to be captured by the Japanese, it's going to be a huge propaganda coup. So he orders him out, uh, and MacArthur and his wife Jean, uh, their son Arthur, and their uh, senior staff catch three PT boats from Manila down through the islands, down to uh, an airfield uh, on uh, Mindanao called uh, Del Monte. And we have three B-17 bombers sent up from Darwin up to Del Monte to pick them up. He was uh, expected, actually, to, uh, to go out by submarine, but that didn't happen. Um, and the B-17s that were, were sent up, uh, they're um, purely functional aircraft, they're bombers, they're cold, they're drafty, uh, uncomfortable things. Uh, so by the time he gets to Darwin, um, he's had enough of uh, B-17s. Unfortunately, when they arrive at Darwin, they can't land because the Japanese are raiding Darwin at the time. So they've got to fly about 80 kilometres south to a satellite airfield called Batchelor. And MacArthur gets out. And he says to his staff, uh, two things, I want a limo and I'm going to drive to Melbourne. He clearly does not have any concept of the distances involved. And his staff had to um, say to him, well, General, there's two problems with that. One, we don't have a limo. And secondly, he can't drive to Melbourne. So they've got to put him on another aircraft. They're a little, little more comfortable this time, a, a C-47, and fly him down to Alice Springs uh, in uh, central Australia there. And from there, he catches... Uh, the train down to Adelaide. But when he gets into South Australia, uh, of course, uh, every state in Australia at that stage had a different rail gauge. So he has to get off uh, the train whilst they, uh, they change the, the bogies over to the smaller rail gauge in South Australia. And they do this at a place called uh, Tarawi. It's in outback South Australia. It's in the middle of nowhere. And he's on the platform... Um, waiting there and there happened to be some reporters around and one of them said well what now general and he says i have come through and i shall return and that's where he makes his uh, famous uh, statement it's in outback south australia i don't think you can find a more remote place to, to be honest uh, everybody thinks he made the, the statement in uh, in the philippines no it was in this uh, tiny little place in outback south australia uh, he arrives in Adelaide and then immediately catches the overland train into Melbourne and sets up his headquarters in uh, in uh, Melbourne there. But, it, but he's uh, too far away from the action which is uh, occurring up here in the islands in New Guinea, so he moves up here uh, to Brisbane in uh, July 42. And it's from this uh, building, which is now called the MacArthur Chambers, that he is directing all the fighting that's going on in uh, New Guinea and the islands uh, to, to the north. So in terms of the prosecution of the war in the southwest Pacific area, there is no more important place than you know, where we're standing right now. Now, of course, when MacArthur gets into uh, Australia, um, they have to do something with him um, because under the original war plan Orange, the war in the Pacific was a naval engagement. And the only job of the army was to uh, garrison the various islands once they'd been uh, taken by the Navy. Uh, MacArthur being MacArthur, uh, he wasn't going to be uh, subordinate to anybody, so they created a separate command for him called Southwest uh, Pacific Area, which is basically all the brown bits, including Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, uh, the Dutch East Indies, uh, 
Malaya, Singapore, uh, Philippines, etc. And then uh, Sinpak, Admiral Nimitz, he got all the blue bits. Uh, the one thing that MacArthur doesn't get is Guadalcanal, that comes under Nimitz. Uh, MacArthur's focus uh, is purely on the Philippines. All he's doing, all his actions uh, from now on are with that one goal in mind to get back to the Philippines and uh, push the Japanese out, defeat the Japanese up there and uh, uh, you know, come good on his promise to, uh, to return. So after two years in, in Brisbane um, and the fighting that's gone on along the Kokoda track uh, at Milne Bay, uh, and the island hopping campaign, um, MacArthur actually uh, is able uh, to then move his headquarters up here to uh, Hollandia, uh, now called Jayapura. And uh, from there, he will then move uh, eventually up to uh, the invasion of uh, Leyte Gulf and start his campaign uh, from there to retake the Philippines. Now, we have... Um, two uh, very important battles that are being fought. Um, one is the, on the Dakota track, and most people know about that. Uh, there are no Americans involved in that fighting. It's purely uh, an Australian action with uh, the two militia battalions, the 39th and 54th militia battalions, and they do a, a job for which they were never trained to do. Uh, militia uh, battalions in Australia are purely garrison troops. Uh, but because we don't have anybody at home, quite literally, uh, they're all overseas fighting, um, then the militia battalions were the only troops that we had to be uh, sent up there on the track initially. Eventually the uh, 7th Division does come back home and uh, they are then sent up on the track and they arrive just in the nick of time uh, because the 39th and 54th are just about exhausted uh, by this stage. Milne Bay. Now Milne Bay is very important but we don't talk about Milne Bay very much. Now, Milne Bay is right here at the uh, uh, eastern tip of New Guinea, and the Japanese uh, had sailed down from uh, Rabaul down here with the intention of uh, taking uh, Milne Bay, and it had three airstrips there at Milne Bay, and that uh, had they taken Milne Bay, that gave them two things. First of all, the airstrips... Uh, could uh, be used to uh, support the uh, fighting that was going on in the Kokoda track. And secondly, um, you control the sea approaches to Moresby and also the Coral Sea. So very important. The Australians defeat uh, the Japanese at Milne Bay, and it's very uh, quite an important uh, victory uh, for those reasons that uh, they stopped the Japanese from being able to take uh, Moresby, but also... It's the first defeat of the Japanese in the Second World War. And it's the Australians who do it, and they shatter this myth of the invincibility of the Japanese troops. Uh, bear in mind that these Japanese troops, they're battle-hardened. They've been fighting up in China since the, the, the mid-30s. So uh, these are very well-experienced uh, troops. And um, fortunately, they failed at, uh, at Milne Bay. Having uh, retaken uh, Kokoda, um, the Americans uh, are now ready to uh, help us with uh, uh, the uh, Japanese uh, uh, that are dug in at, uh, at Burna and Gona. Now, 
realise at this stage that the first American troops to come into Australia came from what was called the Pensacola Convoy. And that was a convoy that was originally destined for the Philippines. Uh, by the time they got out uh, to Australia, the Philippines had fallen, so no point in sending them up there. But the troops were actually National Guardsmen. So they're not frontline American troops. They're not, uh, not trained uh, to the same extent. The Australians uh, get Gona, um, and uh, eventually we take Gona, and that leads to, to the famous signal, Gona's gone. And the Americans get to take Buna. Now, the Japanese were very good at uh, defensive positions, and uh, they sighted their uh, their machine guns very well. Uh, you could be in a crossfire with you know before you knew it, and you had to uh, dig these um, uh, uh, barricades, these uh, uh, Japanese out one by one. Um, you would not see uh, any of these Japanese trenches until you're basically on top of them. And the Americans learnt a very hard lesson at, uh, at Buna, uh, you know, and just how difficult it was going to be to, uh, uh, you know, fight with the, uh, the Japanese. Now, MacArthur, who's here in Brisbane, um, and he's got little concept of... of the fighting and the environment in which these uh, troops are fighting. Uh, it's muddy swamps. Uh, you're in jungle. Uh, it's humid. You get a tropical downpour every every afternoon. So it's uh, it's the worst possible fighting conditions that you can think of. And he's not happy that there's uh, been enough progress. Uh, so he calls in his uh, good friend, Lieutenant General uh, Robert Eichelberger, and says to him, Bob, I want you to go up and take charge of the fighting uh, at Boona. And basically, I want you to put uh, people in charge who will fight. He said, I don't care if you have, you know, corporals in charge of, of regiments, provided that they will fight. And uh, Eichelberger says, uh, yep, no problem, I'll go and do that. Now, as Eichelberger is walking out the door... Uh, MacArthur turns to him and says, Bob, take Boona or don't come back alive. So uh, that was the, uh, the instruction. Um, the Americans take uh, something like 2,700 casualties uh, at, uh, uh, before they eventually take uh, Boona. And uh, that's their first introduction into uh, fighting the Japanese. Now, those casualties pale into insignificance when you uh, see the sort of casualties they're going to take at uh, Iwo Jima and Guam and places like that. Uh, but it's their first real taste of war and the sort of uh, tenacity with which the, uh, the Japanese are going to fight. We will continue the tour on our next podcast. The website for the museum is www.mmb.org.au and on Facebook, look for at MacArthur Museum. You can also find links to the museum on our Facebook page and on our website. Horn Island is located in the Torres Strait between the mainland of Australia and Papua New Guinea. During World War II, it was home to over 5,000 Australian and US service personnel. Over 800 Torres Strait Islanders volunteered to form the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion. Vanessa Seekey is the curator of the Torres Strait Heritage Museum. Joining us on the line from Horn Island in the Torres Strait is Vanessa Seekey. And Vanessa is one of the founders and curator of the Torres Strait Heritage Museum. Vanessa, many thanks for joining us. 
Oh, hello, David. Thanks for having me. Horn Island and World War Two. Can you start by describing its role during World War Two? So Horn Island was the most advanced operational airbase Australia had to New Guinea while still being in Australian waters. So as such, the airbase had 5,000 Army and uh, Air Force, American and Australian, by the end of 1942. So they would conduct missions from here, flying into New Guinea. Uh, attacking missions and reconnaissance, and then get back here uh, in one day. Uh, plus also the sea lanes around Horn Island were vital uh, because every ship supplying New Guinea with troops and equipment had to come through the international channel here uh, in the Torres Strait uh, to get to New Guinea and also to supply Darwin. If you could give us just a geography lesson on, on where Horn Island actually is, please. All right, so we're, it's located in the Torres Strait. The Torres Strait is located um, north of the tip of Queensland um, and uh, between the tip of Queensland and Papua New Guinea. So it's 35 miles north of the tip of Queensland. And if you jumped in a single-engine plane and flew north, you'd be in Papua New Guinea in 30 minutes. The, the, the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion was raised in 1941. Who were they and, and what was their role? The Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion, or uh, the acronym is TSLOB, uh, they were formed initially as a platoon in 41, um, because initially to free up non-Indigenous soldiers to, to fight in, in New Guinea. Uh, but the numbers of enlistment was so um, so extraordinary. 880 volunteered. So that number uh, formed Australia's only Indigenous military battalion that we've ever had, which is the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion. Uh, so it was officially formed um, at the beginning, oh, Mar April, May in 43. So next year, on the 26th of May, we're celebrating, commemorating as well, the 75th anniversary of the formation of this battalion. I'm assuming that there also might be some relatives still alive from those who served in the battalion uh, on, on Horn Island. Is that correct? Oh, yes, there's many, many families here on Horn Island and on Thursday Island and the Outer Islands as well. So um, there's only two members of the original battalion left. Uh, we're up at Saibai and one's down at Banaga, and I'm on the tip of Cape York. Uh, but there are a lot of families. Military service is seen very in high regard in the Torres Strait. Every family has someone who served at some point in World War II because there are only 10 men of eligible age still in the outer islands who weren't serving. So you've got entire families, brothers, fathers, cousins, uncles, all in the same battalion. So there are a lot of families. Um, around, and we hope to see a lot of them next year at the commemoration. And, and the unit was very well regarded, but in December 1943, some of the men decided to strike. What was that about? Uh, in December 1943, um, prior to that, they'd had a patrol up to Papua New Guinea, up to New Guinea, um, along the Elden River. Some of the, the Torres Strait Lord Infantry Battalion members were sent on that patrol, um, and they encountered the Japanese on the choke waterways up in New Guinea, and they were shot at, um, they were attacked. Um, so when they got back, they thought that they wore their, they wore the nation's uniform. They were being shot at, they were being the same as everyone else, but they were paid half the wage of a non-Indigenous soldier. So they had seen a strike used in the pearling industry prior to the Second World War. They saw it used very effectively. So they decided that they would go on strike. Um, but to the Army, it's, it's a mutiny, it's not a strike. So they saw it as a strike. So they, they sat down and refused to go on parade. Um, then their officers came out. Um, there was Major Swain. I think Major Swain came out. Um, they 
he explained to them that he couldn't do anything about it personally because it had to go higher up. So they pushed the, um, the issue higher up. And in February 44, um, the Army decided to give them 60% of the non-Indigenous soldiers' pay. Uh, so it was only raised by about 10%. Yeah, but however, in the 80s, they received back payment for the wages that they didn't get during their Army time. So it was rectified between 85 and 90. The families or the veterans themselves got some back payment. So justice at last for them. Yeah, it took a while, took yeah. a long time. And it wasn't until 2000 that they got their 39.45 star medal. At the height of the war, some 5,000 US and Australian troops were based on Horn Island. What was their role? Uh, they were, well, the US were here primarily with the Air Force. So they had the 19th Bomb Group, uh, 93rd Bomb Group with uh, B-17s. So there was Liberators. Um, and they were flying missions into New Guinea. For example, B-17s would leave their base at Longreach with a flight, uh, come here to Horn. They would do six, as they call, long hops up into New Guinea and then back, and then they'd fly back to Longreach and swap over with another flight. Um, there were other American uh, aircraft like the Liberators. You had Thunderbolts and Kitty Hawks, Aerocobras. Um, just about every aircraft type the Allies had came through Horn Island at one point to get to New Guinea, either on supply missions attacking missions or reconnaissance. The Americans also had army here. Uh, they had a coastal, uh, sorry, not coastal, light and aircraft battery and also a weather station here. So they were predominantly Air Force on Horn, though there were two other army units. And what remnants from the war exist today on Horn Island? Well, Horn's like a time capsule for this era. There's a lot still out and about and we conduct the in-their-steps tours nearly every day for people. and uh, We take them out to these sites um, and explain what happened and who was there. And we started our conservation program, so we've conserved one of the sites, a heavy anti-aircraft site uh, at King Point, plus the other site will be conserved at the end of this year with funding that's just come through from Queensland State Government. So it's, it's a time capsule, and we're slowly conserving um, examples of all these different sites. So there's uh, slit trenches, gun emplacements, light anti-aircraft, heavy anti-aircraft, dispersal bays, taxiways. The, air, the airport itself, the uh, runways, they were built in 1940. Uh, they've been um, obviously renovated over the years, but they're still in the same position as they were laid down in 1940. So the island, it is really like a time capsule for that era. And um, can you tell us more about the Torres Strait Heritage Museum, which you're the curator of? Yes, we set up the museum um, to go along hand-in-hand with the tours. But I thought you'd want people would want to see the faces of the people that we're talking about on tour. So we take people out to the different sites, and then they can come back to the museum, and all the different units and squadrons that were on Horn Island are represented in displays. And we've got there's diaries, artifacts, uh, trench art, um, photos, ads, newspaper clippings. It helps to paint a whole story. Um, we've also got myths and legends of Torres Strait, cultural artwork and artifacts and industries of the area today, like Beach de Mer and Culture Pearl. So the museum's balanced between World War II and um, cultural heritage of the area today. And where can people go to find out more about the history of Horn Island and the museum? Um, we can go to our website, um, which is www.torresstraitheritage.com. Um, so they, if they go to torresstraitheritage.com, they'll, they'll find a lot of uh, links to articles that we've written. Um, a lot of information, general information about the area, historical information about Torres Strait and Horn Island. Uh, our contact details are there. If people want to contact us about coming up, 
Um, we've also interviewed about 350 veterans over the years, and we've had an annual veterans reunion um, up until a couple of years ago. The veterans would come back and walk in the steps of where they served, often with their family. Nowadays, we're getting more family members come back because the vets are now in their mid-90s. So now we have a lot of family coming. We've had at least eight or nine family members this year in the last couple of weeks come back. So it's great to see people passing on their family's heritage. Vanessa, thank you very much for your time today. Much appreciated. Yep, no worries, David. Thank you. Glenn Lanwarn is a serving lieutenant colonel in the Australian Army, and in 2012 he was awarded the Order of Australia Medal in the General Division for services to veterans and their families. Glyn reunites lost service medals with their original recipients and families. And joining us on the line from Canberra is Glyn Landwarn, who is the founder of Lost Medals Australia. Glyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. First off, can you please tell us a little bit about Lost Medals Australia? Certainly. Uh, Lost Medals Australia really is looking at just returning uh, those medals which are genuinely lost uh, back to, the, to either the veteran or the family. Why did you establish it? Uh, well, I suppose as a, as a soldier, I, I understand the importance of what medals uh, represent. And uh, about 17 years ago, I, I got a couple of medals myself after service in East Timor. And shortly after that, I was just fishing around some second-hand stores and I noticed that there were um, some you know, medals for sale. I did a bit of research and I discovered two things. First of all, that there are medals that are genuinely on the second-hand and collector's markets. So, you know, they've been sold by the family originally or the, or the veteran. But I also discovered that there were medals that were lost. You know, they had uh, you know, fallen off someone's jacket on Anzac Day. Uh, the family didn't know who someone's belonged to if they found them in a house. So I thought, a little bit naively, that I could do the research and find the family. And it's taken me a little bit of, of time to develop a, uh, a robust research method, but I, from those small beginnings, I've now returned over um, 2,100 medals. And who helps you with the searches? Is it just you doing it, or do you have help as well? In the main, it's me. I do have another... Um, uh, a retired uh, veteran by the name of Bill Wyndham, who, who does uh, quite a bit of research for me. He's uh, based out of Melbourne, and we just do everything via the internet. I've had a, a number of other people help me over uh, the years, but in the main, I do most of it with some assistance from Bill. And, and how do you typically start the search for for relatives uh, of, of the medals that you find? Right. The, the start begins with the name that is on the medal. So all medals that were issued have, that have been issued to Australian servicemen from uh, pre-federation up until today have the uh, individual's name and number on the medal. Either it's on the rim or it's on the reverse of the medal. So that's the start point that I use. Uh, we're quite lucky in Australia where all World War One medals, uh, sorry, all World War One service records have been digitised, and they're on the National Archives website. So just by having the number and name, I can you know, get the full name, uh, get where they were um, geographically located, where they enlisted, uh, for example, from World War One, and then I can use um, things like the the electoral rolls, uh, which I access through websites like Ancestry, and work out 
the family tree. There's also some sites that give uh, births, deaths and marriages. So in, in the main, I can work out a, a broader picture and then all I do is try and follow uh, that person until they died, then the, the subsequent generations until I can get down to someone who I can contact today. And can you give us an example of your most rewarding search and reunification uh, process that you've, you've done? Yeah, I did give a little bit of thought to this question, um, and I think the most rewarding returns have been those ones that are unassuming medals. I've, I've returned military crosses, uh, military medals, and other gallantry awards. And while they are quite special for the story they tell, I think it's just the you know the, the World War One victory medal or British War Medal. Um, to an unassuming uh, soldier, which which makes the best story. And one that comes immediately to mind is medals I got from um, a family that had found them in a um, a locked trunk. And w- the story that they told me is when they first found this trunk, it was their grandmother's, and after she died, they searched their house and they, they located this trunk. And in there was a, a box which had... A number of keepsakes. There was a, a pair of medals, and there was also a series of letters. And what came out of the out of the, the story from those letters is that this particular lady had been uh, had been in a relationship with probably close friends with a with a fellow in World War Two. He had gone sorry in World War One. He had uh, gone to war was killed in action and his medals had been given to his sister. Now, it was always their intention that they would marry one day um, and his sister gave the medals um, of her brother to his his girlfriend um, and subsequently she married uh, another man because her her first love had been killed uh, and never mentioned him to anybody. So for uh, almost 90 years, all all these items have been put away, um, all the letters have been kept. I don't know how often she would have, have read his letters that he had sent her, but told, told a really good story, a lovely story about the relationship between two people, and then all of a sudden it was just cut short by his death in World War One. and then she put everything away. Uh, and when subsequently the, um, the grandchildren found these guys' medals, this other part of her life uh, was, was told to them through, through the medals and his, his letters. Mm. Now, you're based in, in Canberra. What's the, yes. what's the longest distance in terms of reunifying people with medals that, that you've done over the process with Lost Medals Australia? Oh, around the world. Uh, the vast majority, of course, are Australian medals, and, and they come from come to me from all over Australia and sent back all over Australia. Uh, but I've done quite a few medals uh, to the US, to the UK, uh, into Russia as well. So the internet these days makes research uh, easier. It's, other countries don't have as, as good access to records as we do in Australia, but uh, invariably I can probably chip away and, and find it someone you know, anywhere around the world. So, Glenn, this is a, 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 a part-time job slash hobby uh, from a positive yes. perspective. What do you do for a full-time job? Uh, my full-time job is, is I'm a, an Army officer in the Australian Army. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel. I currently work uh, as the Staff Officer Grade 1 Plans in our Joint Logistic Command. And in 2012, you were recognised with an Order of Australia uh, for service to veterans and their families. That must have been a very proud moment for you. Uh, 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 it was, and I, I must say it was truly humbling um, that, uh, that someone was gone out of their way to recognise me. I, I try and do this 
very low profile. I, I worry more about the medals and the family who I'm returning to. So to be recognised was not only made me feel proud, but also made me feel uh, very grateful and very humble. And where can people go to find out more about Lost Medals Australia? I, I have uh, a website, a blog and a, a Facebook page. Admittedly, the website does need a bit of a refresh, but uh, a, uh, by putting Lost Medals Australia into a search engine, that'll come up with those three hits. And, uh, and my blog, I'm, I'm uploading it usually every day. And then I post the stories from the blog onto my Facebook page as well. Glenn, thank you so much uh, for your time today and, and what a great service to veterans and their families and thanks once again. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. The email again is info at thanksforyourservice.net or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Finally, if you're interested in sponsorship or support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.